This is Bail Street, Crime, Finance, and Everything in Between. Hosted by Ira Jettelson, bail bondsman to the stars, and Danny Moses of The Big Short fame, this is Bail Street. Welcome to Bail Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettelson. Got a couple of great guests on today. Uh, Lewis Reed, the national organizer for Cut 50, which has had major news on the, with the First Step Act. So we're going to talk about that, talk about your background, Lewis. And then uh, Isaac Boltansky, policy analyst from Compass Point and a dear friend who knows not just about prison and bail reform, but many other issues. We're going to talk about maybe the upcoming presidential race that looks, you know, it's on the horizon here, cannabis policy, et cetera. So thank you guys for uh, coming on. Um, Lewis, I uh, wanted to kind of start with you. Uh, we just want to jump right into me, right? Right <laughs> into you, Lewis. Right into you. Uh, so big news with the First Step Act. And, uh, you know, um, when I talked to Andy um, over at Rock Nation, who's running this Reform Alliance now, I mm-hmm. said, to her before you and I got to speak, I said, how do you reconcile the kind of Trump Kushner thing uh, with kind of getting something actually done, which mm-hmm. is one of the first positive steps, no pun intended, on mm-hmm. the first act. But uh, we'd just love to get your thoughts on how how that process went and to kind of work our way backwards in terms of how you got started and your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that the process was nothing short of the miraculous. Uh, I'm unapologetically Christian, so there was a lot of fasting. There was a lot of praying. (laughs) There was a lot of like, you know, uh, intercessions at at the altar, et cetera. Um, But I think that ultimately the the goodwill of people prevailed. Uh, This initiative, the First Step Act, it was actually led by people who had been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. We did not have a big uh, treasure chest. We did not have a big war chest in order to be able to subsidize this effort. We just had the sheer determination of people who just refused to die on this issue. Uh, And again, like you just pointed out, right, there were a lot of people who were very apprehensive about being tethered to this organization, particularly with uh, Donald Trump and with Jared Kushner. I don't think that there was a level of suspicion as much with, excuse me, as much with Kushner as there was with Trump. But it was hard to align someone like Reverend Al Sharpton who I had a multiplicity of of conversations with, you know, to try to get the National Action Network and his endorsement on the First Step Act, not because it was a bad bill, not because it wasn't going to impact, you know, uh, communities of color and and those who are poor whites, but, you know, just simply because Trump was tethered to it. So I, I, I think that it was led by, you know, again, it, I, I know that it was led by uh, the determination of people who have been directly impacted. And it was supported by those who uh, were in different different corners of, uh, of society and even uh, different quarters of our political uh, spectrums. So Van, Van Jones, for those that don't know, was the co-founder of Cut 50. So yes. we see him on TV, on CNN all the time. Mm-hmm. We know how we, what his views are. I mm-hmm. actually align with many of those. But uh, for him to not swallow his pride is the wrong word, but to him to, you know, to your point, saying steadfast in his belief of getting something done, no matter who is in the White House, uh, that that's pretty admirable in terms of him being able to move forward and get that done. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that even beyond Van, and we'll take a deeper dive into my history uh, in, yeah. in a second, but when you take somebody such as myself, I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bridgeport is the Chicago equivalent of New York. It's the Brooklyn equivalent of, of, of Illinois. It's the Brooklyn equivalent of New York, et cetera, right? So when you take someone who comes from a space like I come from, where I come from the street, I come from cats where, you know, they are very distrustful of, you know, guys like uh, President Trump, so on and so forth. I put myself out on a limb to be able to go out and say, hey, listen, this is a good bill. Uh, not because it's 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 not a good bill simply because we are 
are potentially going to get the White House to endorse it and or Lindsey Graham to endorse, et cetera, it's a good bill because it's going to free approximately 7,000 people before the close of 2019. So I think that uh, Van definitely went out on a limb. I mean, when you look at black Twitter, you know, people called him all types of names. They called him, a, you know, Uncle Tom. They called him a sellout. They called him a black coon. They said that it was a racial mutiny uh, of the sort for him to be aligned with this administration simply because there's that vitriol of, of distrust and just misalignment from a, a cultural standpoint with this current administration. Yeah, that's bold. And uh, there is one asshole it was Tom Cotton. <laughs> who, who, who actually seemed seemed at, at, at every every, every story t- needs an antagonist in it in any evil exactly. villain. Yes. So Isaac, Isaac, before we get to uh, <laughs> Lewis's background, so people were calling you obviously about the prison reits and the private prison stocks. I'm sure during this time period, of would there be a, would there be an impact, or was that something you were? Getting a lot from Wall Street hedge funds. Yeah, so my, my clients are, are hedge funds and mutual funds, right? And so hedge funders, as you know, Danny, have the attention span of gnats with ADD, right? What? And so, <laughs> and so, and so look, the focus, the focus there was almost exclusively as it relates to these two for-profit prison companies, right? And so that's the angle and the prism through which I, I watch this. But it's intriguing to hear it from your end because what's so extraordinary about this bill becoming a law is – that's how legislating supposed to work. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't anymore, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The system is so fundamentally broken that we don't have many examples of mm-hmm. where we do the normal process, what we should be doing, mm-hmm. where we have debate, mm-hmm. negotiation, mm-hmm. and then a drive to actually get something into mm-hmm. legislation. Mm-hmm. And so that's the most extraordinary part of this is we've almost forgotten that's how the system's supposed to work, right? And so at least for me watching this, it was an intriguing moment in that you saw a system and how how – well designed the system can be when there's agreement, when there's a common denominator, and when there's actually a will to do something. And sadly, I think this might be one of the only instances of anything that we're going to see legislatively of consequence for anything mm-hmm. for the next few years. Do you think there'll be anything more in prison reform or bail reform coming through in this Congress? Or? Uh, you know, look, I'm going to defer to the expert here on, on what the dynamic is. And, and I think that this is an aptly named uh, law in that it is a meaningful first step, right? The question to me and the question that I would pose is, can we see similar laws at the state level? That's because right. as, as we know, the numbers uh, are really such that it's the states that mm-hmm. need to to uh, start moving. And so my question, and, and I know it's your show, Dan. No, so I think <laughs> take, take, take it away. You know, but look, that's, that's my question. We'll yeah. leave. We, there was an enormous amount of work done mm-hmm. on the federal level to get to this right answer and to focus on recidivism and all of these mm-hmm. important issues. What's your sense as to how that can trickle down into the state politics and the state legislature? That's a great question. And I think that what happens historically is that the moment that states start, start seeing the feds move in a direction, it gives them permission of the sort in order to follow suit. So you saw it. So let's let's rewind for a second. If you go back to the 1994 Clinton crime bill, right before that, you saw the federal move towards 85 percent of a sentence to be served uh, for a term of imprisonment. And immediately afterwards, state states followed. I can tell you without necessarily naming um, the, the, the governments, we've actually been contacted by at least three different governors who said that they want to introduce a version of the First Step Act in their state immediately after the bill was passed. And I know that we are going to be having uh, meetings with uh, a very top aides and uh, top principals with those governor's offices uh, within the next two to three weeks. So I I think that this 
First Step Act on a federal level definitely massaged the the, the policy platform for states to be able to follow. And, and no. one more thing to add mm-hmm. on that that I find intriguing is this was done with Republicans in charge of the White House, mm-hmm. of the House, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the Senate. Mm-hmm. And I think that that provides at least some political cover in certain mm-hmm. corners and, and different states where they can say, look, this was a bipartisan effort, but it was signed into law by a Republican absolutely. president and cleared by two chambers yeah. run by Republicans. <laughs> a- a- absolutely. And, and I think that even when you heard the sentiment of Lindsey Graham, when you heard the sentiments of uh, Chuck Grassley, when you hear the sentiments of, of people who you don't necessarily think would actually be outspoken on prison and or sentencing reform, when you really take a deeper dive into that and you when you interrogate those 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 notions, you'll see that people really want smart justice reform. We don't want our jails overcrowded. We don't want officers to be, you know, they're, they're to, for their safeties to actually be jeopardized. We don't want sexual assaults in our prison. We want to be able to have something that is going to make common sense. And what makes common sense is to be able to have smart criminal justice reform that includes both prison reform and also sentencing reform. So so when you walked in here, and we'll get into the Ira stories with you in a, in a second. Turns out I, you guys know. I, Ira is my new man. I'm yeah, bringing, I was, I'm bringing <laughs> Ira back You just hope you don't need him ever. You just hope you don't need him ever. No, 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 no. Well, you don't need me. No, you, yeah. those days are over for, yeah. for Lewis. But we probably know a lot of people that you know you did time with. and so let's, so, so let's start with Lewis. So there's no one more qualified to understand the system, I'm mm-hmm. sure both on the state and federal level in terms of having gone through it and and you you made the most of it in terms of look where you are now and, mm-hmm. and what you've been able to accomplish. So can we just go back and talk about what led you to prison in the first place and kind of what you've learned along the way and how is it that you became a um, clinical, uh, is it? Consultant, cl- right? No, clinical, I'm, I'm, actually, uh, a I'm clinical, actually a clinician. I'm, clinician. Yeah, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm a practitioner. How old were you when you first stepped in? So when I first stepped in, I was approximately 13 years old. 13 was, years yeah, old. But I, I look at it as if my introduction to the criminal justice system was when I was approximately five to seven years old. And that's when both of my parents were indicted by the United States federal government. And I had to be raised by my maternal grandmother from my those formative years from about the age of six to about 11 years old. Now, when my mother comes home, guess what happens? Here comes crack cocaine. So not only did I lose my mother uh, to a, a federal prison sentence, but I also lost her emotionally, to even drugs. while she was present, to drugs. Thank yeah. God she is in full uh, recovery now. Well, knock on wood. Yeah, but, you know, that that was my introduction. That was my primer to the criminal justice system. Then, you know, and I don't want to uh, make this uh, too psychological, but when you look at what we call uh, social determinants of, of behavior and or intergenerational errors of thinking, like we, us, us, clinical people like to call it, right? Essentially what that means is that Ira grows up in, where are you from, Ira? I'm from Westchester. All right, so Ira grows up in Westchester, right? And let's say, for instance, in Ira's neighborhood, Ira comes from a family where, you know, everyone is our, our professionals, right? You come from a family who are, you know, uh, whether they're bankers, whether they're in uh, healthcare, it doesn't matter. His you dad come, was a prison guard. My, no, no, no my dad part. wasn't a prison guard. My dad worked on the rock for 30 years. Okay. He was so, a teacher there. Okay, so your, your, your dad was in corrections, right? He, well, he's a teacher okay but okay he was around well, it he, he was, was around, around he was it. a teacher he's he exposed to it so you come from a neighborhood where uh dad is a teacher and all of your peers their family members are you know very well uh, very well adjusted they're professionals etc that puts you on a trajectory to follow after the same when you come from a space where i come from where both of your parents are incarcerated you had cousins who had the largest indictment of its kind in connecticut in the Connecticut history, and then you step into a neighborhood where all you see is people who look like your cousin, 
your your family your your peers whose family members may not necessarily be in federal prison, but they're they are away, right? right. What that does is it produces something inside Absolutely. of you to be able to follow that trend. Absolutely. On a, on a subconscious level. So back in 2000, I was indicted by the United States federal government for bank fraud and felon in possession of ammunition. Um, there were two separate incidences where uh, I facilitated a continuing criminal uh, enterprising scheme to defraud banks uh, for approximately three hundred and something thousand dollars. And in a separate incident, I was robbed. I sought reprisal as a result of being robbed. And I inadvertently, uh, when the uh, gentleman uh, robbed me, I inadvertently shot a five-year-old. Right. Uh, who, thank God, made a full recovery. Uh, so I was sentenced to 188 months in federal prison, which is approximately 16 years. During the time that I was incarcerated, there were three things that happened with me. Number one, I had a spiritual epiphany. And um, that recalibrated me. I started looking at my my life and I started looking at the, the world through a different lens. Uh, number two, an education passport opened up with open up in my mind. And that that was uh, uh, prompted by one of two people, John Gotti Jr. and uh, a friend of mine, Herbert Finner. And your listeners very well may say, how can John Gotti Jr. prompt? John's a bright guy. <laughs> <laughs> prompt education. When I was incarcerated, I used to walk counterclockwise on the track. I used to walk counterclockwise. And if you know anything about, you know, being in prison, everything is monotonous. You you every, you stand up at a certain time, you go to you go to child. It's all regimented. Yeah, everything. everything. So I'm walking counterclockwise against the track. And John saws me one day. He says, Hey, he says, Hey, Canali. That's what they call me, Canali. He said, Canali, hey, what's going on? I'm like, what's up? He's like, How come I always see you walk counterclockwise? And I said, I'm conditioning myself because when I get home, I have to go against the grain. Because I'm going back to a place that's not necessarily supported by the financial infrastructure that you may be going back to. So he said, we start walking, he start talking. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, when you got, when you got busted, he said, what did they take from you? And I said, well, man, they took about 230000 in cash, about, you know, about 80000 of that was in counterfeit. He said, what else did they take? I said, they took, uh, 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 I had about two condominiums. He said, did they take some cars? I said, yeah, they took my cars. He said, they took your women too? I said, I got a no. few still hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I, said, I, said, I said, I still got a few hanging around, but I got to check in with them in about six months. They'll probably be gone. He said, you know what I don't understand about the brothers? I said, what's that? He said, the one thing that they can never take from you is an education. And it was in that moment, it was in that moment that something snapped in my mind. And it was that conversation in con- uh, 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 in convergence with another conversation that I had uh, with a person who has since developed me that I went on to not or- only earn a-, a bachelor's degree in psychology nor another bachelor's degree in criminal justice, but I went on to earn my master's degree in, cl- in clinical counseling. And so the third thing that happened to me is that I realized this, those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often furthest from resources and power. Let me say that again. Those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often re- furthest from resources and power. And I wanted to be able to bridge that gap. I knew how the system was disproportionately uh, uh, sentencing people. I knew how the, uh, the system was excessively prosecuting people. And I wanted to be able to change. I wanted to be able to change the system. I wanted to fight the power and I wanted to do it with absolute everything that I had. So I said to myself, when I get out of here, I'm going to continue the track that I started while I was while I was in. Hence the reason how I landed in the work that I'm in now. And it's funny, That's there's amazing. not that many people think like you though. Thank not you. that many people think like you. But now if they think that there's hope, if they think there's something on the other end mm-hmm. and you tell them that while they're incarcerated, you can change people's life. You change one person's life, you're changing 
10, 15, and, you know, the next generation. That's really- correct. And, and, my, and my, my, my road to so-called success has not been without a, a little bit of turbulence. You know, just approximately 18 months ago, I was rearrested. You know, and you have to consider that I am at the height of my career at the time. I am working for a, a, literally a second chance mayor, the mayor of the largest city in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was, a, I believe he was a four-term mayor. He got indicted while he was in office, went in, did eight and a half years, came out, got reelected. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can I, 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 I did what well, what we call a qualitative and quantitative analysis of the needs for people who are being released back to the city of Bridgeport. I introduced that concept. They adopted it, made me the first director of the uh, mayor's initiative for reentry affairs. So when you fast forward to about 18 months being in, into that position, Ira, here I am. I'm, I'm good. I'm riding high. And the mother of my daughter takes me back to court after I'm home for approximately two and a half years for child support arrears. Sure. Now, this is you have to consider that my I don't have a child, a small child. My daughter at the time is almost 19 going on 20 years old and the state of Connecticut levied those penalties against me. So I'm rearrested for, you know, um, for and I, and I won't get into the minutia of it, but I'm rearrested essentially for child support arrears that accrued while, while you're inside while I was incarcerated. And so. Uh, you know, I had to leave the city under fire. Obviously, you know how that does for, yeah. you know, for, for political optics. I had to leave the city un- under fire. Thank God that I'm still able to retain my freedom. I, was, I had to pay approximately $15,000 in excessive restitution in order to be able to close that case out. Not even in talking about legal expenses. Not even, that, that's, that's, aside from legal, that. that's aside from legal expenses. So, you know, I, I say to all of that to say that the road to, the road to post-conviction uh, or post-incarceration recovery is not one that is, you know, so-called Call it seamless. I, you can look at me as a so-called trophy of in- inspiration or beacon of of light, but I've had my turbulence as a result of of things that 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 happen. And I often tell people, you know, my dad used to tell me this: never make a permanent decision in a temporary situation. And I exercise a, a, a deference of character and an aberration of judgment in 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 that situation that got me rearrested. I need you to come talk to my kids and just have, <laughs> sit down. Seriously, man, you yeah, really are. Absolutely, I only live about twenty minutes from you, so that, that, that that's perfect. So one of the things the First Step Act. Uh, did or it's doing is drug offenses. You you bring up crack cocaine and and how it was unfair, which it is that it's in the crack form or powder form. It's treated differently. The only, di- a- the only the only difference is is that the only difference is that the privileged people in in the yacht clubs and the privileged people in in well to do places they use cocaine and and you got people who look like me, black, brown, and poor white people who look who who, who are using crack. And so if you get busted with crack, you're going to get far much more time, even though it's a derivative of the actual cocaine. Correct. So one of the things in the First Step Act, I believe, was looking at is kind of equating those two together to kind of reduce some of the punishments. Is that not accurate? To a degree. So back in 2009, uh, I'm just going to take you on a a, a political odyssey for a second. Back in 2009, 2010, the Obama administration back. So prior to that, if you got arrested with one gram of cocaine. It was the equivalent of being arrested with 100 grams of crack cocaine and vice versa. So what the under the Obama administration, what they wanted to do is they wanted to bring about equity. 
in that. So rather than reducing it from 100 to 1, they reduced it down to 18, oh, 18 to 1. So now if you get busted with one gram of of cocaine. cocaine, it's the equivalent of getting busted with 18 grams of crack cocaine. Under the First Step Act, and when that bill was introduced and when that law was passed, it wasn't retroactive. So essentially what it meant, meant was it only uh, impacted those people who were coming into the system, right. not those people who have been disproportionately sentenced already inside. who are already inside. So under the First Step Act, what we did was we got that particular provision made retroactive. So it's going to impact- How many cases are you going to overturn? About, about, about 3,500. Wow. About 3,500. So yeah. 3,500 people are going to be resentenced and possibly be released from before the, before the close of 2019. That's awesome. Yeah, and hopefully they don't go back but that, in. But that's just federal. Yeah, that's just federal, right? If you apply that to the state, there are people in state prisons for the same well, exact offense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you, well, I, I I would be remiss not to even add as well is that under the First Step Act, uh, we increase good time from 47 days to 54 days a year, right. which is approximately going to impact about 4,000 people who will be released before the close of 2019 as well. So, Isaac, one of the things going on is obviously paralleling with the First Step Act, which is happening as we saw ballot measures in the midterm election, obviously throwing out convictions, certain counties in Ohio, uh, marijuana convictions, cannabis convictions, right? Uh, it's happening. So what are the developments right now kind of parallel processing? Because in, in effect, that's prison reform, getting sentences reduced, three strike rules change and things like that. So are you seeing stuff uh, kind of like on the state level that Lewis is talking about for the First Step Act? Are you seeing stuff happening? Are you a lot more ballot measures and a kind of a grassroots movement there? Sure. I think 2020 is going to be an incredibly conse- consequential year for a number of different reasons, right? And you've got to watch the ballot initiatives. And we're watching them for a slew of different reasons, everything from payday lending in California mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there are a number of consequential societal uh, initiatives that will be handled through the ballot process in particular, especially when we think about what 2020 could be in a lot of different ways, right? You have twice as many Republicans defending seats in the Senate mm-hmm. uh, as as the Democrats have to. You still have a House which could uh, easily stay under Democratic control. You have a massive presidential election. And, I mean, Danny, this is something you know better than I. We're probably eighth, maybe ninth inning of an economic cycle. So we could be going to the polls mm-hmm. during a recession on top of it. 2020 can be a massive swing year for everything from small dollar payday lending to prison reform to cannabis, which is something I know we're going to talk about later today. You could talk about it right now and get the cannabis thing out of the way here. So the Wednesday, uh, the uh, SAFE Act is being voted on by the House Financial Services Committee. So or the- D.C. doesn't move that fast. So, <laughs> so all, all we're doing- Lewis all, knows how slow yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> all we're Subcommittee, doing, sorry. Yeah. Subcommittee. All we're doing on Wednesday is for the first time ever, we're going to have a hearing in a House Financial Services subcommittee. So we haven't even gotten to the main okay. committee yet. And it's going to be examining uh, one particular issue. Can legal cannabis companies access the banking system? And we know that they can't right now. And we know that there is a fundamental incongruity between federal law where it's prohibited and states where we have states. Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Ten of which have actually decided that recreational cannabis use is uh, is legal. And another whole set who have different forms of medicinal uh, legal purposes. And that fundamental incongruity that has given was given to us by federalism is what we're going to be talking about on Wednesday. Here's the way I think about this. We're not ready, at least in this Congress, to talk about legalizing uh, cannabis and changing its treatment under the Controlled Substances Act. But we will take an incremental step. And that step will be, let's just clean up the law and say, if it's legal in a state, 
then the banks operating in that state should be uh, should feel fine to offer banking services to those companies. Again, these things don't happen overnight. It's incremental. You have to build a case. You have to tell the stories. And it's something that I was thinking about when you were describing the First Step Act. You know, in D.C., stories matter a lot more That's than correct. spreadsheets. That's correct. Right? And so with this issue, the banking lobby has tried to sell it with spreadsheets and all that. No, let's talk about actual mm-hmm. people who who benefit from cannabis and the, and the structural impediments that you have to economic growth that will come from what the states have already decided should be legal. Got it. And so, Lewis, I'll put back to you. If you had to put on your dream ticket, or if you and Van have even talked about it, or if you've been talking about the 2020 election, since as we speak, everyone's kind of announcing now. I mean, there's going to be 20. Yeah, I, I, quick- think that, I think that you and Ira should announce. Like, yeah. <laughs> I Everybody want, should have the hat in the room. Ira wants everyone to be out on bail. That would yeah. be bad. <laughs> I think they should. What do you, yeah. you think? I, Give I, them bail. Let them I, get out. I agree. That's how we have you out the uh He would just arrest people for walking down the street so he could get the bail, <laughs> bail of the business. No, because one of the things is uh, bail, obviously, is near and dear to Ira's heart. Yes. I mean, Absolutely. But, but Ira also wants it to be done correctly. It's mm-hmm. not. And Ira brings up the point when people just throw get rid of bail it's unfair no you can't do that no but certainly i was going to say you your firsthand knowledge you were stuck in the system whether you deserve to be or not i'm saying mm-hmm. you were stuck but there's people that get stuck in the system on a 500 bail that they can't put and their lives ruined they end up on well, so, well let me let me let, go, let, go let, let me i want you to talk that. about it now we've had this on the show before mm-hmm. and people talk about bail reform all the time and there is a happy medium mm-hmm. i don't believe that someone on a should be in on a $500 bail, and some people should be on a $1,000 bail. Mm-hmm. But I've spoken to judges, mm-hmm. okay, and I've spoken to prosecutors, and they say, hey, Ira, you know, you don't see their rap sheets. You don't realize that we've given them one, two, three, four, five chances to come back on ROR, which is released on their own recognizance, and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. And then it costs the Warren squad to go out and get them, mm-hmm. and it costs the police to go find them, and they just say to themselves, well, once I get picked up again, I'll just, you know, whatever. But- I believe, and I and I, I don't know how you feel about this, Lewis, or is that there's got to be skin in the game, mm-hmm. okay? If someone commits a crime, mm-hmm. they're entitled to bail, mm-hmm. and they should have accountability, and there should be skin in the game. Allegedly commits a crime. Allegedly. I'm sorry, Lewis. <laughs> allegedly. But, and that's where we go back and forth, and you know, right now we have people lobbying up in Albany, and they're trying to get rid of cash bail, and they have this whole major problem that's going on in New Jersey right now, which they're basically sugarcoating it and making believe like it's not happening. It, there's a problem, okay? Mm-hmm. And then there's the person, if they go back to getting rid of cash bail, that basically sits and languishes in jail for 445 days because he wasn't able to get bail and then was found not guilty or they dismissed the charges. Mm-hmm. What happens to that person? Mm-hmm. Well, nobody brings up that person. And that's what you talk about going down to Congress. And those are the people that need to come out and say, well, and I sat in jail for 445 days and mm-hmm. nobody did anything. So I understand there's Lewis's a happy point about People that are closest to it are the ones that can do the most. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And there's, again, it comes down to be, it doesn't have to be black and white. There is major gray areas if everybody works together and figures it out. Yeah. And I, I think, I think so. Uh, you know, taking a page from the First Step Act, when I was initially uh, recruited to be in this position as the national organizer for Cut 50, I had a lot of trepidation around the bill. The bill was skeletal. Uh, in its original concept or, or, or construct, I should say. And, you know, when I had a conversation with Van and I had a conversation with our national uh, our, our national director and co-founder, Jessica Jackson, I expressed it, you know, without compunction. And what they said was, number one, we need voices like yours, to Isaac's point. We need people to be able, who are going to be able to transmit and tell a story into rooms about how this system has impacted 
people such as you and the people by whom you are connected with. The other thing is that there is a healthy medium. There is a healthy medium. There is a healthy medium to everything. All you have to do is live long enough and have a relationship with a woman, and you will realize that compromise. Danny, yeah. has, a, Dan, right. Danny has a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? I'm a compromiser. Yeah. But but you know there, there there's a there's a healthy medium in, in everything that we do in life, and oftentimes you know for and Isaac can probably speak to this far much more intelligently than I can. Um, but you know there's political gainsmanship uh, to be had by grandstand and, 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 and everything else. But the moment that you put those things aside and the moment that you say, hey, listen, OK, I understand where we disagree. I, I, I'll tell you a very quick, good, cool story. I was in a room with uh, a large unnamed uh, a civil rights organization. And there were, you know, a whole bunch of uh, people, you know, that their constituency and it was this major coalition, and we were talking about the First Step Act, and, and, and the conversation was heated, right? And we're 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 just not going to give Trump a win, and 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 you guys, you know, you guys want to be you guys want to be in bed with Jared Kushner, and it, it's just not good. It's not good for 2020, and it's not good for us, and we can just wait for for another Congress, so on and so forth. And as I was in the room, there were f- uh, several things that happened. Number one, um, my grandmother used to. My grandmother was a, a had me study the civil rights era extensively. And I thought about something that MLK said about the fierce urgency of now. And he talked about within that framework of the fierce urgency of now is that when you have a moment, when you have an issue that is as pressing as the First Step Act and or as bail reform, you know, i.e. Khalif Browder, et cetera, when you have something that is as pressing as that, you don't have the luxury of saying, let's wait for another Congress because people's lives are literally hanging in the balance. The second thing that I realized, and I asked them a question as as I was listening to everybody kind of like going back and forth, I said, yeah, okay, I, I hear what you were saying about that this is not good. And I hear what you were saying about how you can't stand Trump. And I hear what you were saying about how you think that Jared Kushner's uh, suits are too tight. And I hear what you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. I, I hear all of these things. Now, let's talk about where we agree on the merits of the bill. Let's get away from let's get away from feelings and let's look at facts. Where is it that we do agree? And the moment that 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 I interjected that into the room, there was kind of like this. (sighs) Okay, everybody calm down. Everybody calm down. There you go. And, And then ultimately. You know, we didn't we didn't emerge from that from that conversation with an, an an immediate agreement, but ultimately they came along to be able to support the first step. And, and this is something, Lewis. It's it's a line I hear every single time I watch a congressional hearing or a politician speak. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, most of the time they don't mean that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right? Most of the time that's just trying to pivot away from that's the hard correct. questions. Mm-hmm. This time we actually got that, and mm-hmm. that's what makes this time different. Yes, this is a meaningful first step that hopefully can lead. To the second step and, and it's not it's not it's not the final step and to, right. and to iris point you know in terms of like there's there there's there's areas of gray life doesn't exist in black and white life exists Absolutely. in gray areas. everything's in, let's, i want you brought up a good point that khalif browner situation i i i was kind of i was on a spike television show uh i think it was a, a documentary and um you know people don't realize going back to that situation with, with khalif browner when his bail first got set mm-hmm. It was $3,000. It was a cash-only bail. Mm-hmm. And then it got the law changed where the appellate division came in and said, hey, you must set a second form of bail. And 
I don't believe anybody in between got that notion where uh, some attorney could have went back to the uh, judge and said, hey, I want to set and this. I, that's something and that, that I didn't that, even know. Nobody knew that. Right, right. And then he also had a probation issue. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. You know, mm-hmm. Khalif had a probation issue. And listen, mm-hmm. what happened to him is a tragedy. Mm-hmm is a tragedy. And what goes on on Rikers Island is tragic mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And how it is over there right now is tragic yes. when I say that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but getting back to that, I would have been happy mm-hmm. as a bail bondsman, as a New York State bail bondsman, to take a 16, 17-year-old kid out of jail for $300 mm-hmm. if that bail got changed. Mm-hmm. Because I know Khalif would have went back to court because my job is securing the defendant's appearance in court mm-hmm. and he would have went back. Mm-hmm. And what happened, that's a problem in the system. Mm-hmm. And the system that's where we got to start sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's Which not, is not a reflection of bail bondsman exactly. in and of itself. It's a, re, it's a reflection of the system. Absolutely, right. 100%. And it gets right. back to actually what you're, you're gunning for here. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's about the system. Right. And there right. again, we go back to, it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. There's a massive amount of gray area. And if everybody works together, we can get to that gray Absolutely. area. Absolutely. So Jay Z is obviously putting his name behind Who's two, Jay-Z? two two big <laughs> movements. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So he's got Promise on one end, which mm-hmm. is the for profit we've talked about on the show before, helping people get out, giving them a monitoring bracelet or yeah. anklet that, that actually gives them information on where the next court appearance mm-hmm. is, job wanted. And then you have this brand new um, you know, you know, uh, Alliance, Reform Alliance, mm-hmm. which was just begun. Can you are you working with both of those groups or are you working with? So we have a relationship with uh, Reform Alliance. Obviously, Van is the CEO over there. Uh, We have a great. You mentioned Andy uh, earlier. Shout out to Andy and Meek Meek Mill also and and, and Meek Mill and Michael Rubin. Yes, Yes. uh, Meek is Meek is a a very close partner uh, of Cut Fifty. You know we you know when when you're in the criminal justice reform, first and foremost, um, the field is not as large as as large as it appears to be. The circles are not that large, so we all run in the same circles, and we all want the same thing. Right. Meek wants probation and parole reform. Should be. Um, you know, we want we want smart uh, sentencing and, and prison reform. And so, you know, the commonality, the lowest common denominator there is reform. So, you know, when you take someone who has a celebrity profile like Meek, when you back that with uh, somebody such as, I think that guy's name is Jay-Z. When yeah, you yeah. Back, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you back that call with, him Sean. Yeah, all right. When you back that with somebody, someone like Jay-Z, and when you have the uh, someone who has the intellectual brilliance at the helm as Van Jones, I think that that's a trifecta for and Michael Rubin, who is and, the, and, 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 and Michael Rubin, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. So, so when you have that, and Robert Kraft is Robert well, Kraft, yeah. Robert Kraft as well, right? So when you have when you have all of those, you know, uh, uh, combinations in in the same pot, it, it 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 makes a great recipe for success. If 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 this is the qualifier, if it is actually baked right. Just because you have high profile names does not necessarily mean that that's going to guarantee you something. Um, but I do know personally um, that everyone who is invested into the Reform Alliance is invested into the former Reliance. They want to see meaningful probation and parole reform. And so, um, you know, again, you know, Cut 50, we are um, you just not supportive of the Reform Alliance. Obviously, you know, Van is we look at at the Reform Alliance as an extended family, um, but whomever, you know, whether it's the Fortune Society, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, any other group out there, you know, we work with people nationally. You, I know, I don't know if Isaac feels about this. You you need to run for office. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious here. I'm going to walk out of here. I'll, I'll back Canali in a second. <laughs> I'm going to walk. And who would have thought John Gotti Jr. could contribute something <laughs> to society? And if I walk the track with him, we're both going to meet at the same point. He's going to go one way. I'm going to go the other. <laughs> I'm going to say the first thing I'm going to do is walk outside the building and go, 
counterclockwise. That's the first thing. <laughs> that's that's what I'm doing. No, but I'm serious. Like you, you're so genuine and so passionate, and, and so I mean, at this point, I I think you should consider it. But uh, Isaac, I was going to put you on the spot. I'm going to make you make some predictions for uh, 2020. 2020. I'm not going to say who's if you think Trump gets reelected or if he even runs, because I think there's a chance he doesn't even end up running. But maybe that'll be part of the of the deal. But who's going to be the Democratic ticket? I'm changing my opinion. I want Lewis in there. Uh, <laughs> <serious>. No. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> Isaac, give it to me. Yeah, so look, I think I think there are a couple points. Number one is just the broader macro, right? Um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Mm-hmm. And just like the Republicans had to go through their Tea Party in 2010, Democrats are going through their own version, basically an herbal Tea Party, right, where you got <laughs> the far left. Is that copywritten? <laughs> I'm going to have to use that. I didn't, come, That's good. I didn't come up with that one. Okay. Um, we where it's basically the far left versus the moderates in their party. And I think it's going to be intriguing to see how that plays out, not only on the Hill over the next year and a half, but more importantly, on the campaign trail, right? And I think what you're going to have is about probably two dozen, if not maybe uh, 30 or so uh, different folks running for president, which but on the Democratic side for the nomination, which, by the way, the first debate is in June. This is not that far away. Um, And I think there are a couple dynamics. One is note that I think there are a fair amount of progressive candidates who are going to be tripping over themselves to try to win that progressive vote. And some of these things matter for what we've been talking about here, whether it's Senator Gillibrand's work on no cash bail or Senator Booker and Senator Brown, who have looked into uh, the bail bond industry uh, through the insurance spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, This will be an issue, right? And so that matters, number one, is how does that progressive conversation actually influence the Democratic Party's agenda if they win the White House, Mm -hmm. right? So that's number one. Number two is Danny, man, it's too early, you know. Not, and so, no, this is this is so. This is the data point that I tell clients at this point before the 2008 election. John Edwards was leading right. in the polls mm-hmm. in Iowa, mm-hmm. right? He was the 37 percent or so. Hillary Clinton was right behind him. Barack Obama was right behind her. Then there was the hair and the affair, and suddenly Hillary Clinton was the powerhouse, and nobody could beat her. We know how all that worked out. Yep. And guys, that was before the news cycle began being measured in dog years like it is right now. So no one really knows. I'm listen. You get paid to make predictions. You know, you get paid. You know, I'm just asking you. I won't, you know, no one's going to hold But it did like the Rams it. in the but, Super Bowl, though. But Ira, they they do take odds in Vegas right now. So this is this has you know what Ira Isaacs think. I think we should throw. A couple thousand on. <laughs> yeah, so, look, I think I think there are a couple dynamics. One is I'm feeling increasingly comfortable with the idea of Sherrod Brown as the bottom of the ticket. I think there's a lot to be said for a Ohio senator who won so easily in the most recent election, who has the backing of labor and the union groups, um, and and I think has the voice of progressives down pretty packed as the bottom of the ticket. On the top of the ticket. I, Look, right now, I think that Senator Kamala Harris has the inside track, right? Not only is she going to raise more money than God being from California, right? We've also got to think about how this is going to work out in terms of the delegate process. 11% of the delegates that are needed are in the state of California, right? That is meaningful. Danny, ultimately, I think she right now has to be viewed as the front runner, but my bet on all of this is we're going to have a brokered convention like we saw back in 68, right? I think that's where we're going to be with this for the Democrats. And so let's tune in. We'll see how it goes over the next few months. But the the window will winnow down a little bit. A lot of these folks are going to have to stay in because it's all small dollars now, right? It's not big corporate checks. And we're going to have, a, at least I think, a brokered convention. 
So your your prediction is Harris Brown. Okay, I got that. What about the Senate? Senate? Senate is going to be 51-49 at best. I think the Senate ends up, at least at this point, it looks like the Senate's going to flip, right? Republicans are defending twice as many seats, just like the Republicans were uh, in good position in 2018. Now that storyline is flipped. Democrats are in an incredible position to pick up the Senate. But either way, I don't think it really matters as much just because no, no one's getting to 60, and we're not getting rid of the filibuster yet in the Senate. What should Lewis run for if you were to? Which House seat can we get him to? Because I don't know. Can you win the bridge? Is a that's uh, what's his name? Uh, um, our local uh, rep in uh, Connecticut, Jim. I'm, I'm, Jim Hines. Jim Hines. I'm yeah. almost worried that Lewis is too honest. You know, this is reminding me of, of of my favorite political joke, which is you got these two politicians who are arguing with one another, and the one says you're lying, and the other says I am, but hear me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like so that. my biggest takeaway. Well, wait, is, wait, go ahead. I wanted Ira. to ask Lewis a question. Lou, you, we had we had Pat Poose on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, just before they he gave birth. Ago. Yeah, uh, just before the Golden right, Child was the born. Golden Child was born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know uh, he was talking about he had a cousin that. Uh, he has a law library in his house. He said, "Yeah, well, he yeah, right." And we, he talked about how his cousin was uh, uh, was pinched early on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, doing uh, I think he, he said he had life on the back end, right? Yeah, something. Bad. And you know he he wasn't um, sentenced as a, um, a juvenile. How do you feel about life on the back end of a lot of these sentences? Because a lot of these guys. You know, it, it's a tough number. I mean, almost like people nowadays want to hear you just have a number. Well, through the First Step Act, one of the things that we did under the 841, 851 um, a sentencing uh, uh, clause or, or guideline. provision, guideline, is that they reduced, life from, they reduced it from life down to 25 years. Okay. Right? So there is, under, that, under those two, under those two uh, uh, guidelines, you won't be sentenced to life anymore. Life is effectively a 25-year sentence. Right. Which, psychologically, what that does is, and I've been around people. Right, who have, who you're have inside, life. and yeah. you and you know that. Right, right. So what it does is it, it 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 puts it puts a lot of things at risk. It puts the safety and security of and you would never think that I would say something like this, but it it definitely could put the safety and security of the institution at risk. One hundred percent. Somebody could go kill a guard. I got life on the back end. What the hell do I give a shit? But if I got twenty five, th- I know I might be coming out. Correct. And 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 not a, not even killing a guard though. You have people. I mean, you can get up and you can you know it, it might be my turn on a weight bench. Right. And 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 you can feel like man, you I don't need to be working out today. You need to be working out because you need to stay in shape far much more than I do because I have a date. I have a number. And so that could turn that can turn fatal. I've seen situations. Oh my God. I've seen situations Over- where guys have indefinite sentences where I literally saw one guy take a. a uh, take a barbell and split somebody else's head Absolutely. simply because he was going to be going home that next week. Oh. Right. So, you know, these... That's big, Lewis. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's some huge things. And that talking about rehabilitation inside, mm-hmm. which, my, like I said, my dad worked in, in Rikers Island for 30 years. And I used to say, Dad, you know, what do you think? You know, people, he goes, eh, no one's getting rehabilitated inside. Mm-hmm. Not at he all. goes, it's, it's worse inside. You could, He goes, you go in there. And you get angry. Yeah. You get absolutely. depressed. Absolutely. You get nasty. Mm-hmm. And you have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, going back to that having life on the back end, mm-hmm. if you have a number, mm-hmm. you're thinking in your back of your mind, well, I know I still got to stay respectful in here. Mm-hmm. I got to do what I got to do mm-hmm. inside because no one wants to think you're punking mm-hmm. out. You mm-hmm. know that more than anybody. Mm-hmm. But I might walk away or I might figure out a different solution to a problem. Correct. If I have a number on Correct. the back end. Absolutely. And that's where Cut 50 could really come in. And also, you know, good time. We well, talked cut, about good time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, well, you know, 
54 weeks or 47 weeks to 54, seven weeks for no, every year 47, you're in. 47, 47 days. days to 54 oh, sorry, days. 40, 40, seven extra days. Right, seven, you know. right, same now, seven day, extra days doesn't necessarily seem like a lot. But when yeah. you look you at it years. Yeah, but now, now when you have a, the amount of time that I had when I was in, yeah. you know, that, that would have been the difference between me being released earlier so that I can attend my nephew's funeral Absolutely. who got killed. You know, so the, it may not sound like a lot, but, you know, in all well, actuality. In it, California, isn't it more good time? Don't you? Isn't it 50 percent sometimes of your sentence? I think so. I don't know what the California. See, that's uh, one thing that we have to look at and try to adapt is that maybe we got to give it more. Or maybe we got to give people more chances, mm-hmm. better, better programs inside correct. to that's cut correct. our time. That's OK, to, to say, hey, we are rehabilitated. We inside. need to, We need to incentivize programming through 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 good time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I also wanted to tell yeah. you, Danny, as well. Um, I would be remiss not to say this. Um, we have our National Day of Empathy. That March, is March, March, 5th. March 5th, 5th yeah. correct. March Madness. Yeah, yeah. and w- what that means is that we are, this is our third annual National Day of Empathy. We organize in all 50 states. We raise awareness around one of three issues, either criminal justice reform, either survivors of violence, and or people who have been debilitated by substance abuse. <laughs> we do that on a policy level. That's one track where we are lobbying with our legislators. The second track is that we do it within the community where we bring people from the community in uh, to you know host events, so on and so forth they talk about their stories how they can be involved in action and this year we're doing it on a celebrity track so what we're talking about is that you are going to have the likes of Meek Mill, Van Jones, Kim Kardashian, and so on and so forth. They will be doing public service announcements, raising awareness, you know, raising awareness around the National Day of Empathy. What it looks like, you know, to be, uh, you know, to to have your history preclude your destiny, so to speak. Whether that history is involved in a criminal justice system, whether that history involves you having been, you know, a recovering from opioids, and or if that history involves you uh, being a survivor. Of, of of violence, amazing. That's Lewis, you incredible. must have done a lot of reading inside, man. <laughs> you must have done a lot of reading I, I inside. A, I do a lot of reading. A lot outside. of law library, too. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I, yeah, yeah, a lot of law well, library. Hopefully, March fifth will be will be when you'll announce your candidacy. But uh, <laughs> but I can't thank you enough for coming thank on, so Lewis and, guest, and, and Isaac. Coming Isaac. on with Isaac's prediction, I'm going to Vegas now. But uh, <laughs> that'll do it for this episode of Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Bale Street. You can subscribe to our podcast at bellstreet.com or any other service that you use to download podcasts. We'll see you next time on Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson.